just like we see in that video, the truth is that sinners cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. It's impossible. But thank the Lord that Jesus ushers us into his presence. It's Jesus who left the throne in heaven to come and to live among us and be one of us, to live the life that we can never live, to live in perfect obedience to the Father and fulfill the law and to lay his perfect life down for us so that we might be able to boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence. The entire book of Hebrews is a comparison of how Jesus is greater. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is better than everything. Jesus is better than man. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than the old covenant. He's better than Moses. He's better than the sacrificial system that was in place for centuries. He's better than the priesthood. And here in Hebrews chapter 12, here at the end of the chapter, we have another great comparison to go over. A comparison between the physical and the spiritual. A comparison between the now and the present and the future. A comparison between the law and grace. There are two mountains described in the text that we'll be looking at this morning. And even though the first mountain is not named specifically in this passage, it does refer to Mount Sinai. And that's the mountain in which the people, through Moses the mediator, encountered God, and God gave them the Ten Commandments and the law. Scripture that was read earlier this morning. Also, there is Mount Sinai, or I'm sorry, Mount Zion mentioned. And I just want to remind you that Mount Zion is that future heavenly city. The heavenly Jerusalem where believers in Christ will spend eternity worshiping and celebrating King Jesus and live in perfect fellowship. And both these mountains are in view today. And so what I wanted to do today is is put up a slide on the screen to help you visualize these two mountains. All right? Now, this this vision, this, this image was locked in my brain many years ago when I first encountered this, this text in Hebrews chapter 12. And I just couldn't help get this image out of my head. And I will say that if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, uh, Lord of the Rings was a classic set of fantasy novels written over 50 years ago, eventually made into very successful motion pictures. In fact, Return of the King won Best Picture at the Oscars the year it came out. Uh, you'll recognize Mount Doom here on the right, and Minas Tirith on the left. J.R.R. Tolkien is the author of Lord of the Rings, and he's a believer in Christ to use much imagery from the Bible in his uh, fiction narrative. And so I I just put together this slide because this is the image that's been locked in my memory ever since I read this text. And I I just wanted to give you a a visual representation of this so that perhaps over the years, as as you interact with this text yourself, Maybe the same image can help you better to remember and, and to interact with this very rich text, okay? So just, just look at the screens as we listen to the words of Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind to the blast of a trumpet, and to the sound of words which sound was such that those that heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. 
for they cannot bear the command that even if a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then. And now he has promised saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that only those things which cannot be shaken may be removed. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray your blessing over the reading and study of your word this morning. May you speak to us what you have in your message this morning, and may we apply it to our lives in order to give each other hope and confidence in the grace of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we encounter this text and we interact with it, we have to start off by comparing the two mountains, okay? We want to compare these two mountains. And the first mountain described is Mount Sinai, okay? It's a mountain in which uh, we see the perfection of the law presented to the people. It represents the law, the Ten Commandments. It represents God's holy standard, his perfection, and this perfection is, is towering over the people. It's a burden that will crush us on its own. Now, it's not that the law is bad or that the law is evil by any means. It's just that the law itself is like a light that shines in the dark places of our lives and exposes what was there in the darkness. And it points out the evil and the sin in our life. And it points us directly to the need of Christ. We are absolutely not perfect. We cannot keep the law. Therefore, Mount Sinai stands as a monument to judgment and fear and trembling and shame. The imagery here depicts this unapproachable nature to God and the wrath of God against sin. And then we have Mount Zion. Mount Zion representing the perfection of grace. And there is perfection to be found in grace, although it's not ours. The text says that Zion is inhabited by the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Zion paints a a picture of a celebration, the heavenly city, 
where myriads of angels are there and the people of God are assembled to worship him. And because God's presence is there, then the demands of the law still remain. The demand of the law to be in God's presence is still applied. It's just that by God's grace, it's by God's grace that we can one day reach that far-off mountain. The mountain of God's city is untouchable now, but the good news of the gospel is that we can be made perfect through God's grace. The two mountains still stand as two destinations along life's path. The truth is that we need to acknowledge the fact of the necessity to pass by Mount Sinai to get to Mount Zion. You can't get to Mount Zion without going and brushing past the truth that's represented there on that holy mountain. Many people you may encounter would like to receive the reward. Maybe they're very interested in going to heaven. They'd like to get there someday, but they're just simply unwilling to acknowledge the truth, and interact with the law of Sinai. Even people that identify themselves as Christians may talk a good game, may say all the right things, but when it comes difficult to follow God's law, when the the rubber meets the road, they simply make excuses or try to deny what God's word actually says. I feel like in our lives we can either have two much of Sinai or or too little. Uh, We could perhaps go to either ditch along the road, and both would be wrong. We can experience too much of the mountain through legalism and self-righteousness and pride, or we can experience way too little and ignore the holiness of God and, and have too little fear regarding God's wrath towards sin and unrighteousness. You see, when you're far away from God, uh, when you're far away, not just through religion, but through relationship with God, you may look off in the distance and see these two mountains. And from a distance, these two mountains may seem like they're one and the same. But the reality is, the closer you get to God, the closer you get to the mountains, you realize that they are two separate destinations along the path. Apostle Paul said about the law in Galatians chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, he says that before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So you see, the, the first mountain is just a waypoint along the path to to direct you to Mount Zion. The law in Mount Sinai exists to eventually lead us to Christ. We can't even know our need for a Savior unless we first interact with how far we fall short of God's standards. All right, so we've established the two mountains. We've compared them, but now we must try to connect them. How do we connect these two mountains together? How do we know the way to Mount Zion? Well, this is exactly why Jesus came. Jesus came so that he can show us the way. He is the way. He's the truth and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. And so what we see first is that there is another mediator, another mediator, and he's Jesus Christ. 
Jesus stands in contrast to Moses. Moses, he was full of fear and trembling. He was the mediator of the first covenant. And now Jesus stands in contrast to him. He's another mediator, a better mediator. He's the mediator of the new covenant. The new covenant, of course, is still between God and man, except it's of grace. The old covenant that Moses introduced us to is one that's represented by the law. It's perfect. But the law itself does not save. Okay? The law can only point out our sin problem and point to the need of a Savior. The law has no power to save us. No one can reach the standard of the law. I mean, Jesus made it very clear in his earthly ministry that he did not come to get rid of the law. He didn't come and say, now that I'm here, the law is abolished or the law is obsolete. It's just the opposite. He came and he fulfilled the law perfectly. And it was only because of his perfect life and his perfect fulfillment of that first covenant that he's able to usher us in to his kingdom because of his perfect blood sacrifice. His blood sacrifice is is reminiscent of the centuries of sacrifice of bulls and goats and that sort of thing that atoned but never completely cleansed people of sin. And and Jesus' sacrifice, his once and for all sacrifice for sin was enough. The Bible is very clear that without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness of sin. That's what Jesus did on our behalf. So Jesus stands as the mediator. But I want us to see something else this morning that connects these two mountains, okay? In the Bible, there, there are plenty of meaningful mountains, okay? It's full of meaningful mountains. We have uh, Noah's Ark coming to rest on Mount Ararat, right? At Mount Moriah, we see the Lord providing a substitute sacrifice for Abraham when he was with Isaac. Mount Sinai, of course, we receive the Ten Commandments. From Mount Nebo, we see Moses climbing to be able to get a glimpse off into the promised land before he died. Elijah had his showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And, of course, we've mentioned Mount Zion. But there is another mountain. And there is one that we haven't mentioned this morning that connects these two together, the, the mountains between law and grace, and that is Mount Calvary. Mount Calvary, the mountain where grace and truth meet, where judgment and mercy intersect, where life and death are exchanged. Again, Jesus is the way. He provided that way on that terrible hill. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. It means that even though that we deserve death, we've earned it, it's a wage Jesus laid his perfect life down. He paid that death penalty. He paid our debt so that in his death, we may have life and life eternal. So the question is, where, where have you come to? What mountain have you come to? If you're here this morning, then it probably means that you haven't wholesalely rejected God. I mean, you're here, you're seeking answers. You're trying to interact with God on some level. But what mountain have you come to this morning? Maybe you're you're stuck staring up at Mount Sinai, and you just you can't seem how to scale that mountain. Maybe you've tried so many times that you're tired and weary, and you're just stuck at the base camp. 
you're trembling, you're ashamed, you're trying to fulfill the law, but you're failing over and over again. And the truth is, maybe someone has never taken you aside and just said, look, just come a little bit over this way, look around, and point your way to Mount Zion. That's what we want to do here this morning. There is another mountain. Don't get so tripped up on how distant God seems and how many times you tried to scale that mountain and reach out to God because you simply can't do it. No one is Mount No one is meant to scale Mount Sinai and live. You must accept the work that Jesus accomplished on Mount Calvary. It's the only way. Now, to the church, to all of us here, the question is, what are we calling people to? Which mountain are we calling people to to interact with God? There's a book called What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey. And he gives this a very powerful illustration, a real-life illustration of a time where a prostitute had come up to him and seeking help. And she was in dire straits, very desperate. Uh, she was hungry. She couldn't afford to pay for her food for a two-year-old daughter. She was addicted to drugs. And because of this, she had actually turned to renting out her two-year-old daughter to some of the men that she interacted with. Horrible story, horrible situation. A situation in that Philip had to report her to the authorities for child abuse, abuse, of course. But in pondering what he was to say to this woman, he finally said, well, have you, have you went to the church? Have you asked the church for help? And the, the pure, naive shock on her face, in response to that, she said, Church? Why in the world would I go to that place? I already feel bad about myself now. They're only going to make me feel worse about myself. It's tragic. Because people are hurting all over the place. When you examine the people that came to Jesus in the Bible, there were people from all sorts of different walks of life and, and all sorts of different depths of their sin. And it seems like the people that came... The, the deeper they were in sin, the more that they were drawn to Jesus. And so it's unfortunate that we could even entertain the idea of a church who is described as being the body of Christ would repel those very same people that would naturally be drawn to Jesus himself. I just pray that we as individuals and we as a church body would never be guilty of that. Perhaps we're guilty of, of dragging people to the base of Mount Sinai and, and twisting their head up and forcing them to look upward at the, the red-hot flash of lightning and to face the storm and to tremble at the weighty voice. You know, most unholy people don't want anything to do with that. They'll say, I don't want to hear that voice anymore. It's just like the people in our text who who begged no further word be spoken to them. Yes, absolutely, we must confirm that the path to Zion does brush past Sinai. And we all must be confronted with the truth of the law, but, but Zion must loom so large in our view and so large in our gospel presentations that it stays central to the message.
Because it would be such a shame if people never heard the heavenly music and the, the myriad of angels and, and the assembly there celebrating if the sounds of our Sinai drowned it out. If they never went past the trembling Moses and see Jesus with his arms wide open inviting them, it would be very tragic. So next, starting in verse 26, our passage goes on to challenge us, challenge us to evaluate where our priorities lie. In the context of these two mountains, one that is a physical place that can be touched in the here and now, Mount Sinai, and the other that represents a future eternal place, we must focus on those eternal, lasting things. We must commit to this unshakable kingdom. You know, God says that all these things around us, this building, the ground we walk on, uh, our homes, all of our stuff, our reputations, our bank accounts, our investments, our retirement, all these things that we can actually touch will not last. When God shakes the heavens and the earth, all these things which seem important to us now will simply crumble away. This is why we must commit to the things of the unshakable kingdom that God has established. And, and we need to live in the light of things unseen. If you're too busy building a kingdom for yourself and your own little kingdom of, of cards, it's like a house of cards. It's like a, a castle on the sand that you spent hours working on. And it's, it's elaborate and impressive and you want to take a picture of it and your, your friends are impressed by it. But it all crumbles and goes away at the next tide. It won't last. And don't get me wrong, there, there's nothing wrong with having nice things, okay? But when it comes to the fact that these things are so important that it directs your attention away from God and it, and it causes you to compromise the will of God in your life, then they, in fact, become idols, Ask yourself, if you'd compromise your relationship with God simply to get what you think you deserve, it's not worth the cost. It's all castles in the sand. If you're committed to God's unshakable kingdom, you, you must place importance on the things that will not be shaken. Don't trade the quick and easy at the expense of the Father's reward. And don't, don't make a deal for the things that you can touch and see in exchange for the greater prize. Mount Zion may appear to be so far off that it's just hard to even contemplate that reality. But we must live in the light of the unseen now, and we must live in the light of that which cannot be lost. This idea of, of living in the light of something that cannot be lost is, is best exemplified in the story of Jim Elliot. I know many of you are familiar with him. He was a missionary in the 50s where he and a group of missionary friends went down to the rainforest of Ecuador, and they were trying to reach this very secluded group of Auckland Indians. And these were Stone Age-type people who had segregated themselves away from the world, and they were very hard to reach. And he and his friends went down, and they knew the need of this group to hear Jesus Christ because they knew that Jesus is the only way. 
They had the first encounter. It went very well. They were excited about the possibility of sharing the good news and being able to establish a gospel ministry with this group. And yet it was only two days later when they landed their plane on this little sandy airstrip that they were greeted again by these people. And by 4.30, all these men had lost their lives for the gospel. The world said it was a nightmare, and it was. It was tragic. But their actions must be weighed in the balance of the eternity, the balance of the unshakable kingdom. As a footnote, yes, their wives did go on and establish relationship in spite of this tragedy and, and start a gospel ministry with these people and to the glory of God, many people are saved out of it. The fact is, Jim Elliott had penned a very famous quote seven years earlier, and it, it just highlights this idea. He had said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Listen to that again. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And this, this man lived it out. If these men are willing to give their lives to show people to Mount Zion, then what are you willing to give? Hebrews challenges us in the light of that which cannot be lost and to commit to the unshakable kingdom of God. Now, part of how we commit to this kingdom is is to live actually like it's a good thing. All right? It is a good thing, and our lives should reflect how amazing this idea is. Our lives should celebrate the unshakable kingdom. Verse 28 starts with the word therefore. And it means that because of all that was said before, we should show gratitude and offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, which means that our our lives should be characterized by joy and worship. Joy is very important. Why joy? Again, there's another illustration that I read in a book called Smoke on the Mountain. And it gives the story of a Martian anthropology student. Okay, he was sent to Earth to do a survey. And he shows up on a Sunday morning. It's a bright, beautiful Sunday morning. And he surveys the people of Earth across the U.S. Okay? And this was his assessment as he wrote it down. He concludes that the, third, the people of the third planet are obviously sun worshipers. This one day set aside for religious observance. Sometimes loud and rowdy rituals are conducted in open air, drawing large crowds to arenas or bodies of water. Some of the religious mystics address a holy ball, obviously a solar symbol. They do this in, in, as individuals or maybe groups of three or four, and they hit the ball down long stretches of green with these straight clubs. Others go down to the ocean, stripping almost naked and hurling themselves in ecstasy into the waves. And when they're exhausted, they they lay their bodies out and anoint themselves with holy oil, obviously giving themselves completely over to the deity. The Martian goes on to tell of a small group of unbelievers who have rejected sun worship, these 
unbelievers dress somberly and they gather behind closed doors in stained glass buildings. And obviously, they're doing so to keep the sun out. And their, their gestures and their facial features demonstrate that they share none of the excitement of these believers. So the question for us is, is the Martian completely wrong? Or is he terribly right? Believers will go on doing what they do. But what about, or unbelievers will do what they do, but what about believers? What about us? Even now, many come to Sunday worship just out of a dull sense of duty rather than a joy and a delight in the Lord. The life has gone out of their belief. So do we live joyfully in this covenant with our Heavenly Father? And most importantly, the point is, if we do not live joyfully, reflecting the reality of the heavenly Jerusalem, then how are we ever to show people to Zion? How will anybody around us ever want to share what we have? If our lives reflect the gloom of Sinai more than the excitement of Zion, we do the kingdom some very poor publicity. Perhaps we need a clear view of that mountain and again hear the song of the angels and be reminded of the sprinkled blood. Finally, let our life be characterized also by worship. There at the end of verse 28, we are to offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and all. This is worship. Worship is often synonymous with service and doing so with reverence and all. To serve him with this type of attitude is, is not like the Israelites cowering at the base of Sinai. It's like those citizens in heaven, the city of the living God. This is the kind of worship that should not just characterize what we're doing here in this hour but something that is incorporated into all aspects of our life. The kind of lives that, that draw people into God's presence, to Jesus, as he is the only way to the Father, and to invest in that kingdom that will not be shaken. So we're going to have a time of invitation now. I'm going to go actually go ahead and invite the musicians forward. And I simply just want us to just pause for a moment. Just close your eyes and, and just, just pause for a moment. We're all invited to respond to the word of God that we've heard today. It'll be different for each person. But I just want to say that if you're stuck at the bottom of the mountain and you've come to realize that there's nothing that you can do to reach God by trying to be good enough, by trying to come to church enough times or, or putting on a good show for the people next to you. Let me say the last part of this chapter stands as a warning that God is a consuming fire. And it may be the strongest warning in all of Hebrews. If you try to approach God on the basis of your works, on the basis of your good deeds, on your reputation, then you will be left to face God on the terms of Sinai. So let me please invite you to give your life to Jesus. He doesn't expect anything except a simple humility 
to acknowledge your own sin and your need for forgiveness. Jesus promises that he'll forgive you. He promises that all your sins will be removed and you'll be cleansed of all unrighteousness. You can become one of the names of the General Assembly and the Church of the Firstborn who are enrolled in heaven today. And then for everyone else here, I'd invite you to evaluate your relationship with God. Are you committing and celebrating being a part of his kingdom? Are you investing in the right things? And is your life characterized by this sort of joy and worship that not only brings glory to God, but that would draw people into a relationship with the God that we know and love personally? Heavenly Father, I, I do pray that if anybody here is, is interacting with this text and, and they haven't accepted the fact of their sin, or maybe they're, they're finding out for the first time this morning that they know that they're sinner and there's no way that they can approach you on their own terms, that I, I pray that this will be the hour that they come and receive your forgiveness and grace. Lord, for all of us, I pray that we'll be about your business and be quick to show people to Zion. And, and yes, share the truth, share the need, but point them to Jesus Christ and how he's waiting there, opening his arms and welcoming them back as children of the Lord. And we just want to celebrate that today and be on mission to grow your kingdom and your glory. Amen.